Well, so what I, what I am a champion for is the power of curiosity. And the challenge I would give people is, can you stay curious a little bit longer? The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn, and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills, and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hi all, thanks for joining the Learning Future podcast. Today we're speaking with the brilliant Michael Bungay-Stainer, who works at the forefront of making coaching an everyday leadership behavior. He's the author of The Coaching Habit, the best-selling coaching book of this century with over 700,000 copies sold and 1,000 plus five-star reviews. His new book, The Advice Trap, which was only recently released, focuses on what it takes to stay curious a little longer and for all of us to tame our advice monster, something that we're going to unpack through this conversation. In 2019, he was named the number one thought leader in coaching and was shortlisted for the coaching prize by Thinkers 50, the Oscars of management. Michael also in his spare time is the founder of Box of Crayons, a learning and development company that helps organizations transform from advice driven to curiosity led. And he's also just recently started a podcast, We Will Get Through This. I imagine in response to, if you haven't noticed, the challenges that we're facing as a, as a global species. Uh, some other things about Michael, he left Australia uh, nearly 30 years ago to be a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, uh, where he says his only significant achievement was falling in love with a Canadian, which is why now he usually lives in Toronto, having spent time in between in London and Boston. And balancing out all these different moments of success and achievements, he was very notably banned from his high school graduation for the balloon incident, has been sued by one of his law lecturers for defamation. <laughs> And his first published piece of writing was a Harlequin romance short story called The Mail Delivery. All elements I'd love to unpack today. <laughs> so it won't come as any surprise to all of you why I'm so excited for this conversation. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, look, I'm really happy to be here. I think this is going to be a great chat. I, I agree. I, I, I mean, there's so many different elements we can tap into. I just want to ask the question I always ask, though, which is what is your big question that you've been exploring through your work over now some decades? Clearly, you're an expert in coaching, but what, what's the question? What's been the curiosity that's driven you to where you are? Yeah, it's a really good question, and it's something I've been reflecting on quite a lot because the more obvious answer is something like you know, creativity or curiosity and the power of that. But I think if you keep pushing further on why is curiosity so interesting to me, it kind of reflects to the very last things you read out for the bio there, which is, you know, finishing high school being banned and sued by one of my professors and the like, (laughs) which is, I I think there's a deeper inquiry into what does power mean and how does power work? And one of the great kind of hidden secrets about curiosity is it disrupts hierarchy. You know, it, means that you move from a place of authority of knowing of being a person with the answer to a person of not knowing or willing to stand in uncertainty or ambiguity or willing to step aside from a place of knowing and to invite somebody else to take that place to say, why don't you have a go at knowing (laughs) see how it works. And um, part of part of why it's so hard actually for people to be curious, particularly if they're becoming more senior in a hierarchy is um, it's often a way of 
are dismantling some of the power they've accumulated over the years. You know, it's like, I'm just old and I'm white and I've been around for a while or whatever it might be. But that, that, that to me is really um, what's interesting. And, you know, it's kind of just, it's, it's only just occurred to me, I only just kind of made the connections in my own life that, you know, at the heart of the work I do, it's really going, what is power? And really, as somebody who who kind of got dealt most of the cards of privilege around, you know, straight, white, male, overeducated, tall, ridiculously good looking, all of that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it, you know, it's like, how do I how do I give it away? Or mm. even, maybe that's not even the right language. I'm still trying to figure out what the right language is. But it's like, how do I share it doesn't seem right because it's not like, Oh, I'm lucky you. I get to share my power with you. It's yeah. like, how do I invite others? How do I create the space that others are able to step forward and claim what can be theirs? That's, in, that's incredibly interesting. Uh, it reminds me, and I, th- I, I know that this is one of your favorite quotes, the idea that curiosity is insubordination in its purest form. Right. By Vladimir Nabarov, in, uh, Nabokov. Yeah. And so the Nabokov, idea that, yeah. that, and that can happen at a micro level as well within a conversation. And I think right. this, this is and obviously what you've been exploring a lot of. How do you hold space as a coach or as someone that might be in a leadership position and therefore empowered usually yeah. to enable the emergence of uh, a learning, a realization of, of that driving curiosity? Um, you know, and are, one, and are one, we listening to each other is the yeah. big question. I think that's a societal question. Yeah. Can we, how do we listen uh, in, in ways that bring more presence, I think. You know, one of my one of my favorite writers as a kind of ongoing thought leader. I mean, the Nabokov quote is when I came across it, I was just like, oh, yeah, this is some, in, in five words that encapsulates my entire <laughs> life. It's like brilliant. Um, but there's a writer in the world of organizational development, so typically more kind of corporations and the stuff called Peter Block, mm. and he kind of wrestles with the same stuff. And I once heard him say that he considered his work as giving people responsibility for their own freedom. Wow. Now I I loved that as a statement. There's something I would say, I would play with the language around that. But if you understand that when you give, when you, when people are able to claim the power that is theirs, they claim freedom. That starts being interesting. Now, there is something about, do I give you your power? It's like, do I empower you? Eh, that, that, that's an inherently contradictory statement. Yeah. Um, but it's like, how do I contribute to your empowerment? And therefore, how do I contribute to your freedom? Mm. That seems like a big, important thing to wrestle with. And it, and it resonates at all levels and all classes. You know, it's, it's a really interesting thing to, to so there's my big question. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm glad we've got to answer that one easily. Uh, it, yeah. I, it, I do feel that that's the foundation for any work in human development. And of course, mm-hmm. you know, as an educator myself, this is whole piece around how schools function, like what is school for? What, right. what is the future of learning? What's the future of a university? You know, every company now, in my view, is a learning organization. And I don't know if you would agree, right. but frankly, it's, are we empowering collectively each other to do our best work and right. to share our best ideas in service of a yeah. better world. I know that seems a bit cliche, but ultimately that's, 
that's kind well, of the deepest know, question. I, I don't mind if the entire world starts being cliched about let's try and live our best lives and create a better world. We all win <laughs> if that if that cliche plays out. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a big question around schools and organizations because structurally they're set up for compliance. You know, that's, that's the, the root of the institutions is not, oh, let's, let's everybody express themselves. It's like, let's everybody not express themselves. <laughs> let's everybody yeah. know their place and, and learn to be obedient and learn to be compliant. Now, you know, you've got all those alternative educational approaches like Montessori and the like, and I'm not, a, I'm, you know, I dabble in knowing a tiny bit about education. I'm no, no expert at all, but um, it, it, you know, when you decide to take on uh, freedom and power, there's one part of you that goes, how do I start dismantling capitalism? <laughs> also not a small task, but you know, I'm giving myself to the end of the year. I should get it knocked <laughs> off by then. No problem. Well, it's been a long year, so that might yeah. work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. The way time works at the moment is actually inf <laughs> an true. infinite amount of time. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I, yeah, this is it's something about the structures. You know, how do we create liberating structures? And, and how does leadership play into that? So mm. I, I, I'd love you to share you know, what you've learned and maybe it's been in your own journey, you know, like you've brought up some of those moments where you, you kind mm -hmm. of realize you were playful slash subversive, you know, um, you know, what is it, what is it that's, that you've discovered about the role of a leader and how they can kind of unlock, I don't, maybe that's not the verb, we're searching for the right verbs here clearly, but exactly. you know, un unlock really the kind of potentiality that exists within their employees, their staff, their colleagues, their peers. Yeah. Look at, you know, I remember reading a book called Leadership and the New Science by Meg Wheatley probably 30 years ago when it first came out. And I remember being really struck by it because it was the first introduction I had to what complexity was. You know, this idea mm. that if a machine is complicated, meaning, you know, it's got a whole lot of bits and pieces, but it works in a predictable way. You press a button and levers push and something pops out the other end. But weather is complex, which is like you, it, 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 stuff emerges. It mm. doesn't follow a linear process. And I remember reading Meg Wheatley's book and just having this insight going, oh, my God, everything's complex. <laughs> and we yeah. try and manage it as if it's complicated which is why we end up with bureaucracy and why every time something new emerges, we try and create more rules around, you can't do that, so stop it. And then something else emerges and it just becomes brutal. But I, but I also remember reading that book and going, I don't know what to do with this. Like there's something really powerful here as an idea, but it's a bit overwhelming because my, every context I'm in is like, it's a structure, it's a machine, it's ordered, it's a hierarchy. <laughs> There's a book that came out in the last 12 months by um, an American writer called Aaron Dignan, um, D-I-G-N-A-N. It's called Brave New Work. And it is the most um, practical response I've seen to this question. And he says that the starting point is to center an understanding of an institution, whether that's an educational institution or a corporation, around two poles 
Um, one is being uh, people-centered, or people-positive is how he puts it. Right. So not just people-centered, but going, actually, it's about the people. Yeah. Um, and the other is being complexity conscious, meaning if you just realize that your institution is emergent and, you know, it's a farce to come up with a five-year plan. I mean, anybody who was doubting that before, you may have noticed <laughs> yes. that your, your three-year plan or even your one-year plan <laughs> or even your six-month plan of the last six months has gone to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. yeah. It, means that you have to sit with a lot less uh, certainty. It means that authority is pushed to the place where it it best sits. Um, it means that uh, strategy often kind of resembles a short sprint to a certain destination. And then you stop and you look around and go, now where are we? Yeah. <laughs> and, and now how do we work from here? And all of that is very difficult because it is disruptive and it's confusing and it's less certain and you bump into people who go, yeah, but we do, we, we kind of need a CEO to sign off on this or we kind of need a three-year plan or we need a budget for whenever. So um, I, I, think, I think lots of people are trying to figure this out. There's lots of companies or organizations who are uh, testing stuff out and going, let's see what it's like for us to try and build an institution that um, explicitly doesn't have a hierarchy. Yeah. And that immediately starts changing things. That's fascinating. I, I can't I remember think, what your question was. I got a, I got a bit lost in my no, own. No, I, I can't remember either, and it doesn't matter, really. I mean, I think <laughs> because these are the key ideas, you know, and it really is the idea of the question was where, how a leader plays a role in that because so let's say for example we dissolve hierarchy uh and because it just no longer serves us it's it's too rigid um mm -hmm. and i mean it can be rigorous but rigidity is the challenge right same of course right. with with anything so what does that what does that mean in terms of the role of a leader because obviously it's it's more about if if, if aaron's correct and it's about being people positive and complexity focused or aware yeah then that has implications, I think, at, ev at every level. And the point is you dissolve the levels in some ways. And right. there's some interesting work around how do we reinvent organizations um, there, that Lelou speaks to, you know, about you know, how yeah, do you exactly. create these kind of whole holacracies in some sense. Right, um, yeah. And how yeah. hard that is. Yeah. I mean, like I've, I've walked up and down the corridors of Zappos in Las Vegas and, you know, they're, they're the poster child of holacracy. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard. <laughs> they, yeah. find, they have a whole bunch of people left when they introduced it because they're like, we don't get this and we don't like it. And it's hard to know where the nexus of control shifts and it relies on a degree of, you know, to use um, uh you know, the, the radical candor, but yeah. you know, radical candor itself is reliant on a organization that has a degree of psychological safety. Yeah. Cause otherwise radical candor is just another word for, I have a stick and I'm senior to you and I'm beating you and I'm just calling it radical candor. So yeah, it is hard. And I, you get there by trying to start somewhere and running experiments, I think. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm quite taken by this, this approach. You know, we are obsessed with strategic plans, particularly in education, but in yeah. many industries. And so the idea of the agile 
mindset, I think, is something that's really powerful to em- to embrace or experiment with. And the whole yeah. idea is, yeah, how do we how do we be a you know a sailboat in a wind which will move somewhere and then tack as appropriate on where we land? And so the idea of you know how do we do short term planning, even though in some senses it's the it's short termism generally that's been one of the challenges around policy. You know that we are yeah. acting in the sh- only now short-term interests as opposed to, you know, the existential threats that we might have as a species. Um, so let me ask you, where, where do you see the most interesting experiments happening in education at the moment? I think it's really interesting when we consider what a system is, right? And mm-hmm. this whole piece around, you know, the complexity work or, you know, complex dynamic systems is, is new to me. You know, I'm a, I'm a teacher by training and a school principal previously. Uh, so, for me, it's kind of very much, I think it's the mindset is becoming, or the mental models, I think is becoming yeah. one of the most interesting things because in some ways, and it it's, comes back to our earlier conversation, where, you know, what's the mental model where someone realizes that they have agency and that they can ask for that? And that's not just to focus on the cult of the individual, which is problematic, right. but it's to say, you know, why is it that some educators see an opportunity and think almost like an, a social entrepreneur or an entrepreneurially and say, so I'm going to do something about that now at whatever, yeah. in, in whatever role they might be. So I'm really interested in, in that. Uh, and of course there's all the ways that things interface with the system. There are people that are outside right. and that say we have to disrupt from outside. And then of course we've got the intrapreneurs, which are inside and trying yeah. to shift that. Well, look, I mean, when you, when you were a yeah. principal, were you, I mean, knowing what you know now, if you were a principal, do you feel you could try and disrupt your school or do you go, well, I'd like to, but I've got all these policy restrictions and I'm part of a school district and, you know, there's, I've got all these other reasons why I couldn't do that because I'm too embedded in, in other systems that keep me behaving in a certain way. I, I did expect this call to turn into a coaching call. And so I appreciate that, <laughs> I appreciate that Michael. Um, it's a great question. I, you know what? I, I was a, an educator in Central Australia in an Aboriginal community. Right. And so for right. me, you know, my whole mindset has been shaped by that experience. We were very innovative, but largely because mm-hmm. we didn't feel the constraints and it was just so obvious that mm. the infrastructure of a school or the institution of schooling, more to the point, yeah wasn't going to serve our young people. Uh, right. And so what I would do differently is I would be even more bold. And I think yeah. that we are seeing some phenomenal changes and innovations, particularly because of the driven by COVID, but, yeah. you know, just generally speaking. And so the bigger question is how do we, how do we scale up and out? Because scale is very difficult to do. And it's not just <laughs> we'll take this idea and now everyone does it. You know, context is queen in, in human development. It yep. matters always who are the human beings in this right, exactly. organization, including crucially, who are the young people and what are they telling us? Do we take the time yeah. to listen? So the emerging things that I'm very excited about, Michael, probably two things. One is agency or co-agency, like which models are giving young people complete design, you know, where they can design their own learning journey. And yep. The other is the idea of a renewed sense of success towards collective well-being which mm-hmm. is, you know, what is success? And in Australia, we have the ATAR, 
you know, we've had lots of reviews come out about how it's no longer fit for purpose. So the question is what replaces that and how do we right. reframe success culturally to be one where everybody is thriving, you know, teaching all children as whole children, for example. Yeah. So that's, those are, that's, that's what I'm excited that's interesting. about. You know, just as an aside, my brother worked as a teacher for three or four years in Aboriginal community up in central Australia as well. So he's a, uh, yeah, there's that kind we'll of thing. We'll have to connect on that. I'm, I'm still yeah. very passionate about that. Yeah. Um, have you read Sand Talk? No, I haven't. Oh, well, then this is a book that you and your listeners will need to know. Tyson Yunker Porter. Um, ah, he's yes. a, an, Tyson. an indigenous man um, and uh, writing about, I mean, just writing about systems, really, and, and bringing indigenous wisdom into a way of thinking about systems. You know, and, and, you know, there's a way that we've been semi-conscious of some indigenous wisdom, but most of it's like, you know, show us how to yeah. eat bush tucker or whatever, which yeah. is the, the interesting but the not as interesting as some of this other stuff. And part of his framing is we are custodians of mm. our, our country or country, as I guess he, he, they would, he would say. Um, and, uh, you know, I've half read the book, so, but it's funny. He's funny. He's got such a wicked sense of humor, but he also is ridiculously well read across all sorts of traditional Western knowledge as well. So that mm. blending of humor and um, sand talk and yarning, as you'd call it, yeah. and other knowledge, it's a very interesting conversation about, you know, how, how do we, how do we, Certainly, partly, how do we have a more holistic view mm. of our 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 role and our ecosystem? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I I remember learning about um, some of the work he did called Eight Ways, and it was Aboriginal pedagogies, frankly. And when you're working on a cultural interface, as I was, and all of us are in some ways in this ultra globalized world, yeah. uh, you know, it's how do we you know engage in culturally responsive pedagogy, uh, but any culturally responsive behaviour frankly, yeah, um, and understand that powerfully. But I, I need to, I'll get in touch with Tyson and, and ask him to be, a, be on the podcast, actually, because it'd be great yeah. to explore that more and totally. more. Yeah, um, yeah. Because I think that's, and we're seeing this movement, I mean, Indigenous cultures in particular, because of the way that they see things holistically, as mm -hmm. opposed to what broadly we've done in Western culture, which is to compartmentalise everything, including right. our metrics and how we measure success and the old, you know, well, it, it comes back a little bit to that distinction between complicated and complex, which is to see things holistically is an, a deep awareness that it is a we complex system yeah. where stuff emerges. <laughs> to, to believe that things are, are merely complicated, that human systems are complicated, means that you then have permission to atomize everything because it's all just a, it's just a cog in the machine. And um, by, by atomizing it, you, you lose the interdependence between the different parts and the interplay between them, and you lose emergence. Yeah. So you lose, you lose reality because now you're just, you've got a moral that doesn't work. <laughs> that's, such a, that's such a powerful reflection. Uh, I'm taken by metaphor in this space as well, and if we think about, and, and you can think about organizational psychology and performance and coaching, you know, often we still use the mechanistic terms. What's the mm -hmm. lever? What's the cogs? What's the, mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to the organic terms. And I, I really 
do like the organic terms. You know, what yeah. are the conditions for success that, or the conditions that create emergence as opposed to right. what intervention do we put in to give us right. this outcome? You know, I yeah. cannot, cannot pick up all the factors, I think. Um, yeah. Tell, tell me a little bit about advice in, in particular because I think advice comes from that view that, you know, my output matters more than the outcome, perhaps, sometimes. Well, what have you discovered in that? Well, there's um, you, one of the things that I'm always kind of keen to make clear that the advice trap is not a screed against advice mm. um, because this notion of the power of passing wisdom down and passing wisdom on is, you know, part of what civilization is. It's, yeah. You know, you could you can read Sand Talk, and mm-hmm. you know, Tyson's he he's, he writes beautifully, and he just talks about you know, I sit down with my my aunties and my uncles, and we yarn, and they they tell me about the land, and then I integrate the knowledge, and I carve it into a a didgeridoo or a boomerang or something to capture that knowledge. So um, there's there's. A, there's always a place for advice, which is I'm, I can pass on wisdom to you. Mm. What the advice trap is, is when advice giving becomes your default response. And, you know, you, this, you, you just to keep harping on Tyson's book that's freshly read for me, you know, so much of it is around spending time yarning. And yarning is such a good word because it's that we're telling stories and we're listening to stories and stuff emerges from the story. Um, and of course, for most of us, we're, we're, we think the way we add value is to leap in and give advice. And we don't even think about it because we just are now trained that as soon as somebody starts talking, there's one part of your brain that goes, okay, you already know what to tell them. Just see if you can shut them up or to maybe interrupt them and just tell them the answer. And, you know, there are three, three ways that advice um, can kind of lead you astray or your, your default response to give advice leads you astray. First is you're very often not solving the real problem because you, you're responding to the first challenge that's shown up and you think that the first challenge is the real challenge, but actually it, it often enough actually isn't that at all. But, you know, even if it is, and you're like, no, this is actually the hard thing that we've got to figure out. This is the most useful thing that would be figured out in this conversation. Second point is your advice actually is rarely as good as you think it is. You know, we have these cognitive biases when we are all just wired to kind of basically go, look, my advice is amazing. It's the same reason you think your driving is above average. You're like, my driving and my advice are all above average. And I'm like, you know what? (laughs) Probably at best your advice is average, which means it's wrong a bunch of times. It's just not the right advice. And one way of kind of knowing that to be true is to become conscious of all the advice that's offered up to you in one way or another throughout a day and just how bad most of it is, how you just ignore most of it because it's not even worth engaging in. Well, you know, that's exactly how people feel about your advice as well. But, you know, look, even if there's a place where you're like, actually, I know what the real problem is. I know I've got a really good answer. I mean, it's a stonkingly good answer. (laughs) Yeah. 
even if you've got that, there's still a question to ask, which is what's the appropriate leadership act right now? Interesting. Because, and th there's a number of answers to that. One is give them the answer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like this is, this, it's the context is you showing, look, let me just jump in and give you a good answer right now is exactly the right response. Mm. But, but less often than you think. Um, and it might be the response is, I've got a really good answer here, but me holding the space to have them figure out an answer, which I will ensure will be good enough, it may not be the best answer, but it will be good enough, um, is a much, it's a longer term investment because now you're granting competence and confidence and autonomy and self-sufficiency in another person, which means next time they'll go, I don't even need to come to you. Yeah. I'll figure this out myself. And then there's that bigger win. It kind of comes back a little bit to the power conversation we started off with, which is how do you, how do you make way for people to claim authority? Mm. And one of the ways is don't give them the answer, even when you know the answer. Mm. Uh, that, I mean, that would resonate with any educator listening. Because of right, course, that's, you know, as a teacher, whole, you know yeah. you know the point, but you're like, okay, kids, <laughs> how do we get what do you reckon? Answers? What's your yeah. best guess? Figure, have a go at figuring this out, and yeah. then we'll see how it goes there. Because actually, you figuring it out is the win. Mm. Almost certainly, the answer is who cares? <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like it's the journey. It's not the destination. All of that sort of good stuff. This and you great. know, even more so with education. I mean, with adult education. Mm. When, when Box of Crayons is, is teaching people to coach and be more coach-like is the language we would use, yeah. often we'll go, great, all right, here we go. It's the first two minutes of the workshop. I'd like you to pair up and I'd like you to coach each other on this using these, these questions. And people are like, well, we haven't taught us anything yet. I'm like, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Let's start now and you're going to start learning right away and then – now, when I teach you, it'll be in the context of you having wrestled with and struggled with the thing. And yeah. that can be more powerful. That's so great. We, there's a term in education called productive failure, which, right. is, uh, which is precisely this concept, which is too easily we feel that space. So I, I love this term, holding space. And more and more, yeah. I think that's the emerging future of learning and of leadership mm -hmm. is being someone that can hold space either through endowed right. positionality, right? So as an educator of a classroom or as yeah. a leader of an organization. Uh, and I mean, there's the whole idea of having people around you and yet feeling that you're responsible for all the ideas is a very old construct, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It's when you exhausting. And, collective and intelligence. And, <laughs> right. The wisdom is in the room, as they say. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's also just kind of knowing what game you're playing. Like, is the game to have the right answer or is the game to build capacity to generate the right answer? Mm. And one, one is a short-term win and one has a much, a much more ongoing, sustainable, long-term win. Wow. Uh, you know what? I, I, love, I love holding space as well. It's a powerful phrase. And one of the things that I'm trying to experiment with is how, as a facilitator, which is just another word for a teacher. Um, do I create structural facilitation? So the structure of a process carries the weight without me even having to explicitly be the facilitator, you know, kind of moving things around. Mm. Um, 
if you can build a process th that can a group can come and own and then own themselves then you you the group it's, it's not even you holding space yeah it's it's you releasing structures that allow space to be held as people do the work together that's that is fantastic uh i i i like the idea of when i think of leadership generally you know old, old school task assignment you know kind of current you know culture making but you know how do we i might i don't know i'm still working on these ideas but i wonder if the future of leadership is you know a culture architect and so mm -hmm. to your point around the structural you know how do we think as an architect like the great educators are learning architects and they are also great yeah. deliverers. So it's design meets delivery. And so I, yeah. I'm fascinated by this as well. And, you know, design thinking, human centered design, double diamond innovation, there are all these processes are really fascinating, you know, to try to get to a particular point. Yeah. And yet there's all, always so much context that's required depending on the human beings that are working collectively. Uh, yeah. And then how do you help them to build the structure with you? Uh, right. I mean, it's interesting you come to the word architect. It reminds me, this is why Peter Block is a favorite of mine. He wrote a book called The Answer to How is Yes. Oh, and it's kind of a rant against best practice. And, right. you know, he, he would, because he, he's, he's pretty spiky. Mm. He kind of goes, it's kind of the laziness of going, oh, let's just go and find out what best practice is here as a excuse for not doing the work and the thinking yourself. Now, there's a place for going and finding out what other stuff are doing, but just to go and take best practice and import it really works. And he talks about archetypes of ways of managing this, and his preferred archetype is that of the architect because it's part science, part art, and all context, yeah. um, to your point. And just what a powerful role to reframe it as. You know, I'm as a leader, I'm an architect of something interesting here. An architect of culture is a really nice phrase. Well, I've, I've already got a couple of books to delve into, Michael, um, including the advice trap, which I'm yet to yet to receive on order. But uh, um, come, coming soon, I hope. Yeah, I hope so. Also, uh, I'd love to, you know, what is it that you're right on the cusp of? Like, what else, what's an unanswered question for you? I think you know you brought up that idea of this: how do we create structures that might help yeah. people guide themselves? Um, that's an empowerment question that we often think about in the education space, be it tertiary, secondary, mm. or primary. But what, what are some of the, the questions that you're thinking about, even, even directly with your work with leaders? Well, part of it is how do you translate content into practice? Um, you know, I... I've created this thing called the year of living brilliantly, which is awesome. Um, uh, a, a resource on the, the MBS.works website. And it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's 52 kind of diverse, interesting teachers and every week you get a new video from them. It's two to six minutes long. And, you know, not every video is going to land with everybody, but um, uh, basically I just tapped a whole bunch of interesting people and went, give me it. your best shot. What do you got? Teach me something teach us something and there's all sorts of people getting really excited about the provocation and the learning but what we every six weeks we built in an integration week where you're like mm. before i give you more content what did you learn and what are you taking from it and what's landed and what didn't you get and, and you know just it's like 
it's like a it's like a little lemon sorbet to try and clear their palate before <laughs> they get courses, their next. Yeah, yeah, between <laughs> courses. But but I still want. I don't just want people to go. That was amazing, and I've got new insights. I'm like, I'm now I'm now experimenting. I'm running experiments in my life to kind mm-hmm. of go right. When we're going to test out what's important, what do I know? What are my resources? What's my experiment? And how do we move forward on that? And so that's, that's part of what I'm just trying to figure out, which is how, how can I do that at, a, at some degree of scale? Yeah. Because you could say that that's the role in a classic one-to-one conversation of a coach. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, it's like coaching for me is insight and action and impact. And you hope that those things feed each other in a virtual circle. You have an idea, you have an insight about me or about my situation. That insight provokes action. You do something about it. That action creates some degree of impact, hopefully positive. That that impact then generates its next f- phase, the second phase of insights, and so it continues. Um, I don't have the patience to coach people one-to-one. I'm just not that nice a person. Um, but I love the idea of going, how do, I help? how do I help people if I don't have to actually hold their hand through it? But how do I build structures that allow that to, to work for people? So that's what I'm trying to figure out. That's a great, yeah, that's really fascinating. And I think at the, at the core of that, I think is, and we've asked some pretty big questions in our conversation today, but... None of which we've successfully None of which we've successfully <laughs> solved or articulated. But I, I wonder about, you know, it's not about how do we help people change because we can't do that. It's mm-hmm. like what, how might we contribute in a way where people decide, choose to change themselves for the better? And that's your point around impact, I think. Yeah. It's why the yeah. focus should always be on outcome, not the output. You know, we see this in teaching and learning, which is, Sometimes we're focusing on the teaching. You know, I, as, I as a teacher, I taught a great lesson. Uh, you know, the question still remains to be asked, did anyone learn anything, right? So, <laughs> yeah, alleg- allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> allegedly, somebody. Yeah. Um, so that, that piece around, you know, shifting behavior, and I, it comes back, the idea of the mental model, I think, is so interesting. Yeah. Like, what do, we, what do we feel about ourselves, about who we are, what we can do and what we know, and the way that those sure. interact? You know, and I yeah. often think about the cognitive meet the social meets the, you know, the emotional, as, yeah. you know, as working in that field. And no one's going to shift anything if we're not emotionally, if we're not inspired. There has to be the, the emotional mm-hmm. aspect to that as well. I think it's one of the big challenges with mass schooling is that we kind of forgot about that somewhere along the way and with all the measures that we yeah. put in place. Well, the class, you know, the, the, the metaphor that's been used in various places is the, the rider on the elephant. Uh, you know, it's just like you got a rider, you got an elephant yeah. walking along a path, and if that is our, that, if that's the combined rational, emotional, and social, we we're so tempted to put all our focus on the rider because it looks like the important thing, but in really in that system, it's often the least influential in change. In fact, so much of it is environmental. It comes back to that kind of can you build facilitative structures that have people find themselves walking a path without even really kind of being aware that the path is laid out before them. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, Michael, I have one final question for you, although I yeah. have about a thousand. But my final question <laughs> is, you know, what's your take-home message? What's that sticky insight that you would offer 
uh, around learning and the work that you do? Well, so what I, what I am a champion for is the power of curiosity. And the challenge I would give people is, can you stay curious a little bit longer? And, you know, rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly. And the way you start really doing that is you, you might just start noticing how quickly you now jump to advice and how often you want to fill the space and add value by telling people stuff. And, you know, pick a question or two. Like, and what else is one of the best? And just see if you can stay curious a little bit longer because you'll notice it shifting the way that you show up and you, 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 and the role you play in the relationships you have. Michael, uh, profound thoughts as always to end on. Thank you so much for your time today. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure, Luca. Thanks for having me along. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.